Our scripture this morning will come from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. We'll read verses 1 through 5. We're going to focus specifically more on four, verse 4 and 5, but we're going to read 1 through 5. Again, that's John 17, 1 through 5. You can find it on page 1073 in your pew Bible. If you are new here with us and didn't bring a Bible with you and would like to follow along, there's a black pew Bible there in front of you. If you don't even own a Bible and want to go home with one, that is our free gift to you. You're not stealing from the church. Rather, we believe in the power of the word of God to change lives and to know the truth. And so we want you to have that with you. Again, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. It is written. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here ends the reading of today's scripture. Let us go to God in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we continue to study Jesus' high priestly prayer, we read the whole section, verses 1 through 5 today, because it kind of holds itself together as Jesus is, is opening up his prayer and talking about glory and glorifying and him being glorified. But here at the end, Jesus says something that kind of opens our eyes. He says at the end of verse 5, he goes, that I had with you before the world existed. And see, John starts out his gospel account of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 1, saying this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This word John speaks of is Jesus Christ, is the one who becomes Jesus Christ. At that time, he is the word or he is God, the son. It isn't until that the prophecy comes from the angel that he shall be called Jesus, the name that is above all names and is now known for all eternity. But here he is, God, the son, before the world exists with the father and the Holy Spirit, the blessed trinity. It's an amazing, glorious, magnificent, and hard to understand and comprehend and explain. But the other day, I was outside with my kids playing, and my middle child, Ellis, who's four and a half, he comes up to me and he says, Dad, can I tell you something? Sure, Ellis, what is it? And he says, I love all the stars that Jesus made. Right, right. It melts your heart as a parent. I'm as a as a parent, and and him being a preacher's kid, I'm like, yeah, that's right. This is this is gold. 
But, but here he is, right? We teach our kids the creation story out of Genesis 1, and, and we say that God made all of this. But here's Ellis, four and a half, coming and telling me that he loves the stars that Jesus made. At four and a half, he recognized that Jesus was there before the world existed and was part of creation. And this is, it may open our eyes, but sometimes it's the little kids who will lead us. And so here Jesus is praying, and, and we find ourselves in this moment on the night that he was to be betrayed. It's, he's already celebrated the Passover meal. The, Judas has been dismissed from their presence, and Jesus has kept on teaching, and yet he knows that something isn't quite done, that maybe some more teaching of a different kind needs to occur. And so Jesus just starts praying in front of everyone. And it's not just the 11 disciples, because remember, Judas is gone. It's not just the 11 disciples, but in the beginning of Acts, they tell us there was about 120 of them together celebrating this feast, and we're together. And they're all around, and, and they're worried that Jesus' death is the end of everything, that what's going to happen next? Jesus can't possibly die. That can't be how the Messiah ends. But Jesus begins by praying, the hour has come. We understand when Jesus says the hour has come that this means that this night he will be betrayed and soon he will hang on the cross shedding his blood and dying for our sins. It also means the hour has come for his resurrection, his exaltation. The hour has come for our forgiveness and our redemption. But Jesus prays the hour has come. So glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. As we talked a few weeks ago, that's, that when Jesus goes to the cross, this murderous, treacherous, evil human device that was created, that through it, though the world may not understand it, glorify Jesus. See, even after Jesus' death, they didn't understand the cross. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth in the first chapter, he says, But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Even Paul is clarifying in the church, no, the death of Jesus on the cross isn't weakness, it is strength, it isn't folly, it is wisdom, it isn't the end, but it is the hour that has come of glory, of redemption for you and I. And Jesus knew this too. He knew the cross wasn't glorious. He knew of its evil, of its torment, of its murder. And yet God chose it to use it for our eternal good. Jesus knew that the time of his suffering had come. And in the other gospel accounts, we know that after this prayer, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're told of his prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane that he is so anxious and he's so worried about this suffering that is about to partake because he is taking on the weight of the sins of all creation, that he sweats blood, and that in his prayer, he even asks God that, that may this cup not pass me, Take away this cup. 
But his prayer doesn't stop there. His prayer stops with, if it be your will. Jesus was on the side of what God's will was to be done and was obedient to death on the cross. Jesus was going to follow God wherever he told him to go. And that's why in verse 4, Jesus begins by saying, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. But we know that Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. He hasn't been resurrected and he hasn't been exalted to the right hand of God. Yet he's saying his work is complete because the hour has come. And Jesus has been faithfully obedient, perfect and sinless to this point, following God's will and the plan of redemption. So he says, the work is accomplished. So that those who are listening aren't thinking, well, Jesus has unfinished work. Salvation can't be complete. Jesus says he's accomplished what God has sent him for. And then in verse 5, he says, and because I've accomplished this work, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And this verse, before the world existed, gives us great hope. It gives us great assurance of our faith that our salvation was no plan B of God's, but it was the plan from before the world existed that we would be redeemed unto him. That our sins would be forgiven wasn't something that happened because suddenly we sinned and God said, oh, I've I've got to figure this one out. God had your salvation planned before the world existed. Jesus left his glory in heaven to put on flesh to become a human, to live life and to suffer on our behalf so that we might have eternal life. Not to show us how we might earn eternal life, but to actually save us. When Paul writes to the church in Philippi in the second chapter, he says it this way. Have the mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus knows he will suffer and die on the cross. He knows he will be resurrected. He knows he will be exalted back into glory where he was before he came down. Theologically speaking, the the words we put around this is this is the covenant of redemption. Now, when we look at the Bible, we understand covenants and we understand God's covenants, that God had a covenant with Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations and, and he would have many offspring that outnumber the grains of the sand. 
We understand covenant and that when Jesus goes to the table on the night he was to betray, he says, and this cup represents a new covenant, a sacred agreement that poured out in his blood would be the forgiveness of sins. But here when Jesus prays in these first five verses of John 17 and hearing the words in Philippians 2, we see that before the world existed, God the Father and God the Son entered into a covenant of redemption for you. That the Son entered into the sacred agreement with the Father, that he submitted himself to the obligations and to the will of God, the plan of salvation. And that on God's part, he likewise was in covenant and was obligated to give a reward to God the Son for fulfilling our redemption. Jesus prayed for something he knew was already going to happen. Jesus prayed for something that the Father had ordained before the world existed. In fact, before the foundation of the world, God ordained that he and the Son would be glorified by saving you from your sins through Jesus' death and his resurrection. And it's Jesus in these five verses, like if we were to sum it up maybe into, into some more modern language, Jesus is essentially saying this, it's time God, do what you're going to do now. That's what he's saying, because all of this was constructed before the world existed. Jesus knows this. He was there. He entered into covenant, and God is faithful to his promises, and Jesus is faithful to the will of God. Here in the Blessed Trinity, we see this, and Jesus wants to say, it's time. Do what you're going to do. Some may conclude, though, That if God had ordained this before the world existed, then why pray? If it's going to be, it's going to be, right? It's, It's even the same argument some will take with evangelism. If God has chosen who will be saved, then why should we share the gospel? Well, it's because what's been demonstrated by Jesus and throughout scripture is this. God ordains the means and the ends. That his sovereign purpose is completed as his people rely on him in prayer and they share the gospel with all people. We see this in Daniel chapter 9. So in Daniel chapter 9, he's leading the Israelites, and they've been in captivity for almost 70 years. And he says, I read the prophet Jeremiah, where God said we would be in captivity for 70 years. I've done the math. We're there. We're near the 70 years. And here's how it's recorded, beginning in verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And he goes on the rest of the chapter 
with a heartfelt prayer, knowing that God had already promised they would come out of captivity after 70 years, but he prays for God's will to be done anyways. And here in John 17, Jesus prays for God's will to be done. Just as when we gather and we pray as the Lord taught us, our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray for God to accomplish his will. For as Paul wrote, God's wiser than men. And God works all things for those who believe in him to their ultimate good. God's will be done. And you know what happens after Jesus prays this prayer here in John 17? It happens. What he prayed happens. He, he goes to the cross and he suffers, but the cross on the cross he is glorified and he glorifies God. And he goes and he is exalted after his resurrection to the right hand of God. He has been given the name Jesus and the name above all names that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess he is Lord. He is put as the head over the church. is put as the mediator between us and God. And here, it's just as God promised. Jesus knowing he has people listening. Jesus knowing that 2,000 years later, we would be gathered here on this day to hear these words so that we might have assurance of our faith that before the world existed, God planned for your salvation. And so we know that in those times in our lives where it may have felt a deep darkness, where we may have felt captive and enslaved to sin. God had planned on saving you all along. God had no plans of leaving you in the deep darkness. God had no plans of leaving you enslaved and addicted to sin. It's this God, this infinite, magnificent God who knew before he created us, we would rebel against him and his statutes and his laws, that we would be sinful and try to be God ourselves. It's this God, this great, holy, just God who is so loving and so merciful. And that the Apostle Paul explains his love to us in this way. In Romans 5a, he says, this is the proof of God's love. That while we were yet sinners, while we were sinners, he didn't wait for us to get our act together and clean it up and come to right living and understanding. But during our sinful times, our most sinful times of our lives, Christ died for us. He says, this is the proof of God's love for you. You didn't have it together. We didn't deserve it. We've earned God's wrath. But God 
chose to love you. That was God's plan from the start. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't a plan B. Your salvation wasn't an afterthought, but prepared for from the beginning. You can't out-sin the cross. Full disclosure, don't try. (laughs) And there's nothing you have done in your life that Jesus cannot forgive. Hold on to this. Breathe it in. There is nothing in your life you have done that is beyond the forgiveness of God. For it has been his plan from the very beginning to forgive you. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, the scripture says this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks this day that you had a plan for our salvation before the world existed. For you knew that we would be forgetful, sinful, and rebellious. And yet, despite all of the wrath we earned, you planned to show us grace all along. Lord, may we hear those words of forgiveness. May we live in to those words of grace. And may we have that assurance that you planned on saving us all along. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.